I think there is nothing better than working with people and building something almost from scratch and seeing it grow into something super special. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit, a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. Before we jump in with our amazing guest today, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Loom. If you haven't heard of Loom, you should definitely check them out. They're bringing video messaging to work. Using Loom is like sending a text instead of making a phone call, but you're using video. You don't need to schedule anything or coordinate with anyone. Just record, hit stop, and a link to your video message is instantly ready to share. Turns out, it's really good for sales. Our portfolio companies use Loom when they're doing outreach, and sending a demo video is just so much more engaging than an email. It's super fast, fun, and the best part, it's free. Sign up today at loom.com. And now, on to this episode. Jeff, welcome. Thanks for coming in. Really excited for this. Thank you for having me. I'm going to jump in with your background. So, graduated Clemson in 94, four-year varsity baseball player. And then in 10 years, you started at a company called JBoss. This was an open-source middleware company. And you were the senior director of sales, managed 12 reps at the time. You were in Atlanta. This was a Peter Fenton company. And I'm really curious, was this kind of round one with Peter, someone who I really respect and admire? Two years into that, it was acquired by Red Hat for about $400 million, where you became a VP, rested, invested potentially for three years or so. And you went on to Novell, were a sales leader there for two years until about 2009, then became VP of sales for the Americas at vFabric for a couple of years, took the open source spring framework and put kind of the VMware orchestration and services on top of that. Then quick stint as a CRO of VirtuStream. Then you became the SVP of sales for the Americas at Hortonworks in 2012. And I, I want to touch on this one for a little while today. And at the time they were doing, this is incredible, less than a million. They went public in 2014. You eventually took that business to over 250 million revenue with over 100 AEs until 2017 when you left, shortly before the merger with Cloudera. And then you went on to do a quick stint at OverOps. And now you're reunited with Peter again at Cockroach Labs. Are you the master of open source and go-to-market sales? Like, <laughs> like, I read through that and I'm like, is there anyone more qualified to talk about open source sales than you? Well, I, I think the mentor who taught me everything I know about open source is, is, is far more qualified than I, but I, I was very blessed. So to, I can help fill in the blanks there. So I was lucky after uh, playing baseball, I started off cutting my teeth, getting into sales, knew at a very early age. I worked well with people and wanted to continually work with people, help them solve problems and help make their success drive their career forward. And the only way to do that was getting into tech sales with you know any possibility of driving innovative technologies and then making customers successful through that innovation. Started off selling long distance stuff, door to door. And it was almost like a Ginsu knife salesman. I was going door to door, learning how to <laughs> literally get kicked out of office buildings, going to office parks. I, I would walk five to eight miles a day selling long distance. And it just taught me the real aggressive work ethic that you need to have the stick to itness to be successful because you're getting rejected, you know, 
nine out of 10 times in that world. But I ran into one customer that was a service bureau provider and that was my first foray in the software and I hit it off with their CEO and he quickly made me a job offer. So I was only at LDDS for probably around six to nine months and I went to work for this customer. And that's when I really started cutting my teeth and understanding what does software mean and how do you go to customers and help sell a product that solves a larger problem that helps them take the next step in the genesis of what their corporation wants to do and maybe that career set. Again, none of this was open source. Open source wasn't even around at the time. But I I had a really good run there and quickly realized, though, when you work for people and you don't have equity in writing, you run the risk of potentially never getting that equity. And it was a very good lesson learned. And I wanted to get more in a consultative approach. So I took a short-term gig for a few years at a consulting company to really teach me enterprise software. And it was an investment I made in my career so that I can learn that enterprise software and help me understand true problems and how customers look and dissect problems, how they're going to go through the next stage of platform change and the technologies that they're going to surround themselves with. And then, you know, a few years after that, that's when open source really became more of a pervasive model, but it was very, very early stages. And and that's when I met Peter Fenton and that first company, I actually never met Peter until after we were acquired, but I, I did meet a gentleman by the name of Rob Bearden. And I spent 18 years in four companies with Rob. And that's where I learned everything I know about open source business models, how to sell candidly, how to build out a sales structure, how to hire, how to really do world-class enterprise selling. And so when I went to JBoss, I took a step back, a huge step back, because I wanted to learn from somebody like that. I had never had a mentor that had been that successful and was candidly revolutionizing how software was done and how you go out and deliver enterprise software to customers. We had a great run at JBoss and it was acquired and, you know. This is my third benchmark company that I'm with and had the great pleasure of learning from Rob at multiple companies. And then Index and Benchmark together became quite the combination. And so as I went through and evaluated different technologies out there in the marketplace, I looked and saw, hey, when these two phenomenal tier one VCs partner together, not only is the product set really set for a huge TAM, but the financial backing where you don't have to worry about growth and and scale and investments, that took a lot of, of stress off the plate as well. And then I was always very blessed to have the executive leadership and mentorship to help make sure we kind of went through all these different inflection points. At what point did you feel like it was time to carve your own path from Rob? What I mean by that is I think What you're talking about is really interesting. Obviously, super important. Pick a boss, not a company. Find a mentor. Have someone that can show you the ropes. At what point did you feel like it was time for you to go do your own thing? Well, I don't think I ever felt like that. I think, you know, Hortonworks was an unbelievable run. So you talk about three amazing companies. JBoss, it was, I think, at the time, the largest open source acquisition acquired in the Red Hat. When a company acquires you, they can do one or two things. They can either acquire you and incubate you and then have you become a part of their sales organization, or they can, you know, 
lay off a lot of the folks and you move out of the organization and not do a very good job on the integration. And I was very blessed to, from JBoss and then going to SpringSource, which was acquired by VMware, to be acquired by two of the greatest software companies on the planet. Spent time within those companies, seeing how huge companies worked, how you assimilate in, how you can partner with core organizations and how you as an emerging technology might help them drive more sales. And I think when we went and did the IPO route, that was an amazing testament to how you build the company, how you go to market, how you really understand customer timelines and then learn at a whole different level, how you make quarterly commits because you're committing to the street and stuff. And I think after five and a half years at Hortonworks and going through four different inflection points, you know, zero to 10 million, 10 million to really 50, 50 to 100, 100 over to 250, I would never have been able to do that if I wasn't surrounded with phenomenal leadership and phenomenal people from sales leaders to CEO to CFOs and then, you know, great teams that work with you. For me, it was the one thing about open source is it's the easiest way to get technology pervasively adopted, but you age in dog years. So on the other side of it, you have open source and then you have the sales side. We like to say, you know, every year is like seven years, right? And so it wears on you. And, you know, I was at three companies that were pure open source, not open core. And the reason I decided to leave Hortonworks was I was candidly just kind of burnt out. I had given my heart and my soul and was very proud of everything we accomplished and all the people we worked with and cannot thank everybody enough. The team that worked with me, I'm still very close with. But at the end of the day, I was just burnt out, right? It was pure open source. And I think had the, the merger with Cloudera happened earlier, you know, things may be different because they had great technology that had a different model, but now they're, it sounds like they're being all open source, but the market has kind of collapsed into one provider. Whereas we were candidly at sales war every day. And that just wears on you when you don't have an extra hook. And for the audience that doesn't know the difference, can you describe the difference between open source and open core? Yeah, so open source is, listen, there, there's no holdbacks. You are the custodians of that technology. You typically need to go employ. And the, the masterful thing that Rob did with Hadoop is he went and employed most of all the key committers. And our charter was, we are the custodians of Hadoop, right? So with open source, if you only have pure open source, that means you control most of the contribution, you control the roadmap, but you have no enterprise holdbacks. That means everything is given to them. Your sales pitch is far different than if you do have enterprise holdbacks that they can only get through a license. Yep. Huge fundamental difference. One, one is all about the pervasive adoption and consumption, and the other is more of a sales tool on how I can now hook and you need this to deploy. You need that enterprise class functionality to do it at scale. And that's the fundamental difference. And Cockroach, when I was evaluating companies after leaving Hortonworks, I definitely wanted and decided I would not never go back to pure open source in the next role. It needed to have something where we had hooks that we can have control just because I had the battle scars. And it's still fundamentally a great model and a lot of companies are gonna be very successful doing it. I just did not wanna live that for the next four to five years. Neha Narkady, the co-founder of Confluent, which is a super famous open source business, She said, open source isn't a business model, it's a go-to-market strategy, which I thought was totally true and really insightful. The show is about building go-to-markets. What are some of the basics, the foundations of 
building an open source go-to-market. You know, what I get nervous about candidly, having never done one, is there's no control. I do not control the sales cycle. People are just using the product. What's the playbook for an open source go-to-market? I mean, I think, you know, open source itself is a distribution model. And I think she's absolutely spot on. And I lived that through JBoss, where it was all about downloads, right? It's all about awareness. It's about education of a market. And you have to have open source components to help build that market. So you top of funnel, right? Top of funnel. Well, very much. If you think about hearts and minds, it's really bottom of it because it's about the developers. It's about earning the developer and the mind share in a market and getting them to think this technology first. So the companies that are doing it really, really well are even getting all the way down to colleges where they give away stuff so that the the curriculum says, use this product first. And you win the hearts and minds very, very early because that changes for you the sales cycle much further down the path. So when I think of open source, it's, it's really a distribution model, get software in front of people. And that's really about marketing. When you think of the license side of it, that's really about sales. And so you have to build that kind of go-to-market strategy around that to help. There's got to be a very tight marriage between marketing and sales to have a successful go-to-market, but they have to have a really tight marriage with the product side of it. Because if you cannot build a world-class product and you know, open source, it's at oftentimes it's release early, release often. And unfortunately, a lot of times the customers are your QA. And that can have a very negative impact on sales motions. And so you have to be able to really have all those committers that could take and, and patch and update. And you want to stay as close to the trunk line as possible with releases so that people who may deploy the technology can be very successful as you have future releases with all the innovation in it. If you have all of these leads, top of funnel or bottom of funnel, how do you prioritize? How do you think about prioritization if if top of funnel or, or lead generation isn't an issue anymore? So what's interesting is just because somebody downloads doesn't mean they're a buyer. They certainly may not be a buyer at that time. That's where the continued education has to take place. And that's where you really have to have a phenomenal relationship with marketing to take that top of funnel down from the leads from your perspective. I was more talking about awareness is at the bottom with the developers opposed to C-suite at the top and top-down selling. So when you're making the sausage and you have the leads that are coming in, you got to look at the conversion rate and what the propensity to buy truly is. And I would say... This is where the science, and there's a lot of great tools out there now and companies that are doing things, but you have to go kiss a lot of frogs before you find who is really truly ready to buy and what their intent is. And so top down, you got to have a really good methodology and you have to have a really good sales process. And those are two very distinct things. And that means you have to understand What is my response time? When somebody does download, how do I educate them? Do we have good documentation? At Cockroach Labs, we have some of the best documentation I've ever seen. They took a lot of professional pride in writing that doc. So it's very easy for people to consume the tech. It's very easy for them to spin up a cluster and it's very easy for them to work with it. So then it's the continued education and offering them more insight so they can be successful with it. And then you marry that with, you know, an inside sales process where you have an SDR, LDR team that is driving, hey, have you thought about this use case? How are you doing it? Here's what other peer groups are doing. 
and leveraging. And then you start talking maybe around use cases and sales plays. But you can't get that far unless you've really educated and have got them successful. And that's where that top down, man, if you can get enough out of that funnel to feed a sales organization, that's your nirvana. Most of the time, you're going through an enormous amount of prospecting and validation of is this the right customer to spend time with? The one thing I learned very early on is your number one asset as a salesperson is time. So if you're wasting your time and it's it's really about spending cycles on things that will not make you successful and make sure you don't do those. Right. And that's exactly what the correct sales process will do. Makes total sense. So I guess when it becomes a marketing qualified lead, it hits the BDR's desk. I am assuming these are not outbound specific BDR functions. It's more inbound and qualification before it gets routed to the field. Is that right? Absolutely. So if you have a bunch of B plus players and you want to make them A players or you have five A's and a bunch of C's, it's a lot easier to take high powered sales talent that have been through a lot of success and teach them an open source model and really show them how to eat and close an enterprise sales motion in open source when you are feeding them good, what I would call sales qualified leads. And, you know, we'll have the notion of a marketing qualified account. They hit a certain score level. And then you give to salespeople, let marketing really digitally nurture, let them do their job, which they're great at, right? Educate, nurture, and then hand over to the sales organization, somebody that actually has the right intent to buy. That's really hard. And most companies never get that right. So a lot of times you end up throwing capacity at a problem to get to numbers and oftentimes that goes with a very high run rate and makes it very difficult to scale. And then the huge burn then doesn't match up with the revenues. And that's where companies get very unsuccessful. The really successful companies are the folks who do get this right. Going back to your earlier comment, I feel like in security and open source, really in general, like IT sales these days, decision making has been empowered lower in the organization where the budget may not necessarily be. How do you think about taking a technical buyer, proving value and, and demonstrating that you're solving a problem for them, and then actually bubbling up the business value to get a deal done? Like there's a big delta between that person and the CIO who might be actually be buying the technology. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a, a great sales methodology, right? And so I'm a big believer in medic, and a lot of people are big on force management. you got to marry this all together. You're not going to be successful just selling to purely developers. We put in together complex territory revenue plans for every individual seller. They need to look at the key personas they're selling to. You may bubble up demand at a sales level for developers, but most of the time they're influencers. They're never going to be the decision makers, right? So you got to win the hearts and minds there, but you got to couple that with the sales strategy that is I'm going after the people who can make decisions that have the actual problem, that have the funding, you know, go through your full band, right? And making sure that everything is covered. And when you can marry a strategy that covers all these things, you can take a complex enterprise sales process, you can drive to a specific use case, you can validate the money, you can validate the need, the requirement, the understand the decision process, what all the criteria is, and then you can marry it so it goes on your time frame. that's when you have a highly performant 
salesperson. If you're only selling to, there's only a few companies in the market right now that focus on, I would say, open source that literally can take orders because there's so much pent up demand that they have so many leads coming in at the top of the funnel that they're spinning out orders. But that's usually transactional deals, 20, 30, 50K ASPs. Enterprise selling, you're never just gonna get that done at the developer level. You gotta merge all that together and get consensus alignment through the whole process. And that's where you start talking three to six to nine month sales processes. That's where you you have to start getting very creative in how you sell and making sure that you have alignment across organizations. What kind of deal sizes are you doing? Like what was the ASP at Hortonworks? Are these big deals driven by enterprise reps in the field? Are these more high velocity deals with an inside team? What's that playbook look like? Yeah, so JBoss and SpringSource were very high velocity, started off with you know low 20K ASPs and rapidly grew throughout the years. Hortonworks, we started off, it was very, very high velocity. It was very complex to deploy and insert and expand, get that lower customer acquisition cost and then get the expansion. That's what you wanted. What we've done here at Cockroach is we have a much higher ASP, but we also have phenomenal expansion. And what I will say is, if you have an open source product that also focuses around cloud, I think cloud today has become another de facto method of distribution of software, right? Everybody wants to be cloud native in everything they do. And so if you don't have an approach that really embraces that, you're probably gonna have a difficult time scaling in the market. And we have a very top-down and bottoms-up approach. We focus on the, the global 2000 at Cockroach we are still perfecting winning hearts and minds of the developers, but we do exceptionally well with the architects and the C-suite, right? Because this is a global problem. Having a globally distributed new SQL platform that is cloud native and cloud agnostic, right? You marry that together, then you have a great opportunity. And so for us, our ASP is higher, but at times we still have a three to six month sales cycle because you're evangelizing, you're educating, and then you have to get through pilots. They have to use the tech to prove it out. And if you have a technology that deals with, for us, we are the transactional data of a company. So you don't take that lightly. That, that's what runs a company's business, right? So they have to prove the technology out before they ever put it in production. But then once you do, you have a very long-term marriage with that customer. And that's why you have to sell high and sell low because you want them thinking, all right, anything native, I want to go out of the box. I want this new distributed platform in Cockroach. Anything old, I need to go and prove out because there's a lot of 10-year of technology that's been built on this old legacy tech. And if I'm gonna modernize, I really need to put it through a different subset of rigors to make sure it stays up at all times. And so that's how we're kind of combining it together. So there's an open core version of what we offer, which allows people to spin up clusters, but a lot of the enterprise functionality that anybody will ever want to go into production, they're gonna need the licensed version of what we offer. Makes sense, man. Kicking myself because I could probably talk to you about this for another hour. But for time's sake, I want to keep rolling into this. I want to yeah. be respectful of your time. No problem. So, dude, I got to ask you, you've kind of written your golden ticket to do whatever you want. And you keep going back to early stage startups. I mean, you have yeah. a $250 million revenue nut on your resume and you're going back to the grassroots. Why? What's drawing you to that? I know it's yeah. not easy. So I guess I'm a masochist. No, <laughs> I, I think there is... Nothing better 
than working with people and building something almost from scratch and seeing it grow into something super special. And I, I learned that from, you know, from the best. And I'm probably not the type that, at least at this stage in my career, that wants to be at a $10, $20 billion company running a huge P&L and dealing with a lot of the bureaucracy and politics of not making a huge impact fast. I think the challenges that an early stage startup presents are also the things that I love, right? I mean, it's it's the constant, the next deal, you, you're only surviving on what you're doing. You get to see and build people's careers and work with them. You get to see, I think the coolest is working with customers who are willing to bet their careers on a technology that will change how they do business. And that's awesome. It's an awesome feeling. But for me personally, taking something from zero and going through all these different inflection points and working with these amazing people, I've been very blessed to work with some of the best sales engineers on the planet, some of the best salespeople on the planet, some of the best marketers in the planet, and some of the best engineers. And just in my organization, help people accomplish their financial goals, help them become amazing salespeople, just teaching them what I've been taught from people who are amazing to me and then working to, you know, the financial exit is at the end of the day, we're all coin operated and that's why I do it. I'd much rather take something and work a lot harder and have a huge financial gain at the end than be kind of steady without the huge upside. Right. And that's probably why I've chosen this. It's not for everybody. It's not for the fate of heart. No, it's, it's, it's super stressful, but you know, you get to meet some of the greatest investors in the world and, Mike Volpe and Peter Fenton. I mean, it's, I, I guess I'm at my third or fourth benchmark company, my second index company. These are amazing human beings that are the top of what they do. Phenomenal investors, but, you know, even equal or better people that look at you in your career and say, this person has executed for me and I want to take care of him and I want to make sure he and his family are in the right situation and they truly care about you. That's special. And that's probably why I'll always be loyal to him. Maybe I'm biased, but certainly helps to use the venture arm as a filtering mechanism for finding the right opportunities because these folks do it nonstop. Okay, moving right along. What was it like competing with Cloudera? Like I've heard some war stories of Hmm. zero to 250 and it was extremely competitive. Again, I'm going to leave it open-ended. What was that like? And maybe just to set the landscape, these were the two kind of premier you know, Hadoop providers, right? Yeah. And it was tooth and nail every step of the way, both trying to grow as fast as possible. And the net outcome was you guys merged. Yeah. It was like a multi-billion dollar merger after all of that, which you didn't even get to see for. You weren't even there yeah. for it. Well, I was still I was still rooting very hard for the folks in the team that I was in the battlefield with. So I I still lived it. What was that like? Yeah, it's a great question. It was a unbelievably competitive, a lot of fun. It was, you know, not for the faint of heart, for sure. They didn't see us coming. They discounted us very early. They didn't think a company that was focused on pure open source could actually do what we did. And I think there was a couple very early landmark wins that we were able to do that woke them up to, oh boy, these guys are for real. And I think what we prided ourselves in was phenomenal sales execution. They had a two and a half to three year lead on 
us with their product and go to market. So their product was certainly more mature. So we just out executed them. And that was a lot of fun because most times we didn't lose deals to them when it came to sales execution. The deals they want is because they were installed earlier and they're getting expansion. And we took a lot of pride in that. I love that. So going from one to 250, you're hiring pretty darn fast. How do you maintain quality? Well, it's really hard, right? And so there's two different models. You can either have overcapacity in the field and just make sure you make your number or you hire all those A players. But the reality is no company's going to get all A players. It's just too competitive a situation. And they may have been an A player somewhere else and it's just not the right fit for them here. Yeah, absolutely. So that's when enablement comes in huge. And, and you know, having a, a roster of people who've worked with you before helps and we were able to do that. But then it's about training up and finding that killer instinct and the right DNA in a salesperson that candidly is ready to go fight tooth and nail in a hyper competitive market. I mean, you remember very early days, there was also MapR. So MapR was there before Hortonworks as well. And so every deal, all three of us were in, it was super competitive and it was all about execution. So to get there, you have to have the right capacity and then you have to marry that with the right training and enablement. And we did a really good job of defining out the right use cases, know which deals were winnable and then going and winning those. Assuming you get another run like that, let's say cockroaches that again, let's say you, you have the opportunity to go do another quarter billion dollar revenue company. What would you change or do differently having seen that scale so quickly? Yeah. So I think the biggest change is we have an open core model, right? We subscribe to what was called the cockroach community license, which means all the enterprise bits are held back and it's in the license itself. That protects us. It protects you from cloud providers taking your technology. I know everybody's seen about certain cloud providers that are consuming other people's technology and open sourcing it themselves and competing against them. This protects us from that. So that would be the biggest change. I think I learned from the best and I am deploying the sales, the same kind of sales methodology and sales process because I know it works at scale. I'm just marrying that with a bigger TAM and a market that is ripe for a very specific technology. So the change that's been made is kind of really around the licensing model. And now I think maybe the other thing is the super tight partnership with marketing and the engineering organization we're at now. I think the engineering organizations at the previous open source companies were always great and they had wonderful people. It's just at times delivering on that roadmap may not have mapped up to how sales can go deliver on deals. You need to innovate faster so you can get deals. And at that time they're innovating fast, but then the quality of the product takes a hit. And so if you can have that innovation with the high quality of the product and a lot of professional pride around that, your customers will get successful faster. And then you can take a lot of the methodologies and process, marry that together. And that's a great recipe for an amazing company. And I firmly believe we'll have that here. Yep. Last couple of questions. What specific metrics do you look for to qualify the early stage opportunity? There's a ton of risk. How do you hedge that risk for you? What are some tells or leading indicators that you look for in an open source business to say, man, this thing's got some pretty sweet upside? Yeah, I mean, I think you got to, it starts with how fast can you build pipeline? How many downloads are there? Where does that particular product sit in its market set? For instance, with us, DB engines, it's a good measurement of how fast are you moving up the rankings, right? 
The pipeline building is absolutely huge. The understanding the addressable market is probably the most important thing. And so, you know, we sit between the database market and the cloud market, and we're right at the convergence of that. So that was a very good indicator. And I think, you know, the investments of your competitors, how well are they funded and what are they doing in the market? Is it a big enough TAM for people to go after? And I think with open source, you can find out pretty quickly just looking at the adoption and how many downloads. It's a great indicator, right? Then with people who you can kind of do a lot of research to see what people are saying about it. And those will indicate great things from whether or not you think you have an opportunity to create revenue. It's just the stickiness of the product and how long can it be sticky? How easy it would be for somebody to supplant you or not? I think those are key things that you kind of got to evaluate. And I think it's, if you don't have those things, I mean, there's a lot of open source projects out there that doesn't mean they'd be successful. Right. There's some great technologies. There's great AI technologies, great ML technologies, great supporting open source technologies. And so there's a lot of great companies that are, are building models around it. And whether or not it will be pervasively adopted or are they strong enough with technologies to supplant an enterprise incumbent that's been in the market for years? Dude, you got to promise me we get another go at this. I want another 45 minutes of your time at some point. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I greatly appreciate you taking the time. I love, love what you guys are doing for the market. Listen, the biggest lesson I've ever learned from open source is nothing worth having is really easy. It's a dogfight, but there's no other way to get you at bats and opportunities for wins. Nothing better than the open source market. So it, it transcends a lot of those commercial license opportunities. Yep. Last two questions. What does the word grit mean to you? How do you or your teams apply it? Yeah, so you know, I would look at grit as just your DNA and makeup, your stick to itness. Never say quit. How an individual would drive their business and make sure they operate at the highest level. Take punches, roll with the punches, get back up, and move on. Love it. And if someone wants to get a hold of you, Jeff Miller, how should they? Are you hiring? You use Twitter, email. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'm your typical sales leader that's uh, definitely has ADHD. So I'm super responsive. And you know, somebody hits me up on LinkedIn, I definitely will respond. Or if they send me an email, that's usually usually the best way. And happy to help anybody. We are hiring and we are growing very fast. And you know, somebody hears this and and wants to learn more about lessons learned, so they don't have to get the battle scars that I had. I mean, I would love to share the great lessons I've learned from the great people that I've worked for. And you're based in Atlanta. Cockroach Labs is based in New York City, correct? Yeah. So Cockroach Labs is based in New York City. I am headquartered in Atlanta. Roger that. Okay, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey, thank you for having me. And uh, I really appreciate the time. Appreciate it, Jeff. Take care. All right. See you, bud. Thank you, folks, for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir, or shoot us an email, gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.